Uh, hey, if you uh, have your Bible this morning or a Bible app, we're going to go to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Man, I am so excited about these next few weeks. We're going to be in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. And I have to say, I've been following Christ, walking with the Lord about 45 years now since I was a teenager. I think I've probably turned to these pages we're going to look at the next few weeks more than any others in the rest of my Christian life. And, you know, some of those critical questions of everyday life as a follower of Jesus are addressed in these chapters. And I have to say, honestly, just even starting to study this, I realize, man, I'm 58 years old. I still have so much to learn. I truly, truly do. Uh, I just got to tell you, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the students going to camp and the kids going to camp. You know, I, I, my family, we, we went to church very first time. I'd ever been to church. I was 14 years old, and my family decided we're going to go to church. And you know, why am I doing what I do today? You know, why have I dedicated myself to ministry? You know, why am I out there getting slammed with shaving cream and soap on Thursday night? You know, stuff like that. I'm just so grateful to God for saving me out of the life that I was in and saving my family out of the life that we were in. When I think back to the trajectory of our life, the Sharp family, my mom, my dad, me, and my little sister, four years younger than me. When I think back to the trajectory that we were on there in the late 70s, early 80s, before Jesus came into our lives, I shudder when I think about that. But there was that, there was that year that I came to know the Lord as my Savior. My sister came to the Lord as a Savior, and my dad did, and so did my mom, all in the span of about six months at this little Baptist church up in Colorado. And it was like there was somebody different living in our house. You know, uh, my dad, I was acting different. My dad was acting different. My mom was very different. And it was incredible. And it was like there was somebody living there with us, you know, kind of coaching us and telling us how to be better human beings, you know, things like that. And it's true, there was. It was Jesus, all right? Look at Romans chapter six. Look at verses one through four for just a moment. So back in chapter 5, we're going to talk about this in a moment, but Paul lays out this whole idea that, that because of the, the sin of Adam, the very first ancestor of the human race, because of his sin and his disobedience to God, like death reigns over the entire human race. And we, we talked about this. You can check this out on YouTube if you want to go back and study this a little bit. But death just kind of reigns. It, it has power over all of humanity. But then because of Jesus' obedience on the cross, giving himself for our sins, now life can reign in us, in our families, in the generations to come after us. And so this is where Paul picks up in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? What is grace? Grace is God's kindness. It's his, it's his mercy when he just gives what you don't deserve, what you can never earn. All right? And Jesus gave us salvation by his grace. He forgives us of our sins by his grace. And this question comes up, can we just go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized or immersed into Christ Jesus were immersed or baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism or immersion into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. 
man, what a fantastic vision that is. What an incredible, compelling vision that we can live a new life. And so the title today, The Foundation for a New Life. In India, a few weeks ago, there was a 36-year-old man who disappeared after he committed a crime. He kind of ran away, tried to hide from the authorities. I can't say his first name. His last name is Candy. So we're going to call him Candy, the Candy Man. The local police, they filed a missing persons report, and a manhunt was underway. And about a month later, the police recovered a body, which they identified as belonging to Candy. And so the missing man's family uh, was given this man's body. They performed a funeral, and they had him cremated. Well, days later, the police realized they had the wrong man. That was not Candy's corpse. And so the body that the family actually cremated was another missing person who looked a lot like Candy. And so they launched a manhunt for a dead man. (laughs) And then after months and months of searching, they found the dead man. And the legally dead man was apprehended and transferred into police custody they never said if the family was excited or not. I don't know if they were, you know, because you know, he had a criminal background. I don't know. Maybe they didn't. But I want you to think about that for a moment. This man walking around India was a living paradox because on the one hand, he was legally dead, but on the other hand, he was physically alive. He was dead and alive. And when you, you and I, we give our life to Christ. We ask Christ to be our Savior. This is what's true for us. Legally dead in the eyes of God, the old man, the old woman that you were, is put away by his grace, his kindness. God says, you are innocent of all charges that were against you because you put your faith in my son Jesus and what he did for you on the cross. And so you're legally, that man, that woman is dead, and yet here you are walking around physically alive. That is who we are today. And so the foundation of new life in Christ is this paradox that you and I have to embrace is that is that you have to believe that you are both dead and alive. In chapter 5, Paul talks about this tremendous change that was introduced by Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, he rose from the dead. It was like a bomb went off, a thermonuclear weapon in human history, and it changed the arc of human history. And now because of what Christ has done for you and me on the cross, Everything has been made new, and you and I have a chance for a new life in Christ. Because all that Jesus did on the cross undid all that Adam had done in the garden. And now something is possible that was never possible before the cross. And what is that? The life of God. The life of God in the soul of man or woman. We give Christ all that we were. We say, Lord Jesus, I've messed it up. I, 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 I have wrecked it. I, am, you know, where I can tell where my life is going, and it's not a good place. And so, Lord Jesus, I give you all that I am. What is that? The Bible says we were spiritually dead. We were guilty. We were slaves to sin. And in return, by his grace, Christ gives us all that he is, his resurrected life, his perfect righteousness, his innocence, his holiness, and his glorious freedom. Colossians 1.27 is going to come on screen. God has planned to give a vision of the full wonder and splendor of his secret plan to the sons of men. And the secret is simply this, Christ in you, 
Yes, Christ in you, bringing you the hope of the glorious things to come. See, Christ came to us. That's Christmas. He gave himself for us. That's Easter. And then he put himself in us. And that's your Christian life, you and me here today. And what we don't want to do in our time left on this earth is to never live the life that we have been given. We don't want to come to Christ, thank him for what he did, but not live in the power of who he is, not live this new life that he gave his life to give us. And we don't want to be so fixated on who Jesus uh, was or who he will be that we forget who Jesus is in the here and the now. And the Christian, uh, the Christian life It's not a lifestyle. It's not me saying, I'm going to do better. I'm going to be more dedicated. I'm going to be more committed. No, it's surrendering ourselves, going to the cross ourselves and saying, Lord Jesus, I give my life to you. I lay my life down on the altar. Lord Jesus, would you live your life through me? 2 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says this, the Christ that you have to deal with is not a weak person outside of you, but a tremendous power inside you. And he goes on to say, I share his life by the power of God. Now look at verse one. This is an amazing question here. Paul's talking about the grace of God, how God forgives sinners, just outright declares them innocent. And then this question would come up everywhere he would preach because people would say, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? I remember one time the Mormon missionaries came by my house. And so I invited them in. We sat down, we talked for a little while. And I said, I, got, I said, guys, I want you to understand, this is what I believe. I believe that we are saved by the grace of God, not by, our, not by our works, not by our good deeds, not by our commitment, none of that. I believe we are saved by grace. And this one young man, he was so sharp and he was so sincere, he kind of shook his head and he said, yes, sir. He said, I, I hear what you're saying, he said, but I've never understood that grace thing. Wow. Why? Because of this question. Should we just go on and on and on sinning, knowing that God forgives us, knowing that all of our sins are forgiven? This creates anxiety for people that are spiritually dedicated. And many people said, Paul, you're giving people a license to sin. God forgives you, so do as you please. And it's important to understand, by the way, that Paul is not talking about a person who is battling with sin. This word here, Uh, is in the present continuous sense. It means to go on and on and on sinning. In other words, it's those people in the first century church that said, hey, I'm forgiven of my sin. There's a lifestyle that I really like a lot. It's very immoral and it goes against all that God says, but I'm going to do it anyway because I believe God forgives me. That's the kind of attitude that he's talking about. You know, my dad had a new life in Jesus, but my dad had a huge struggle with alcohol. And he battled that all his life till the day that he died. And all you had to do was say the word alcohol or, or, you know, say something about drinking too much. I mean, my dad's eyes would tear up. You know, he never had what I would call victory over it necessarily, but he did battle it. He was always battling that sin. That is not the thing that Paul is talking about here. But I want you to see something. Paul is talking about Christians who have knowingly opted for a sinful lifestyle. Three things about this question. First of all, it's a very logical question. Very logical. I mean, this is the grace of God, the glory of forgiveness. If my sins are not going to separate me from Christ, why not go on and on and on sinning? And this 
question was raised everywhere that Paul preached. And it's a charge that you and I as Christians, we have to face. If our teaching of the gospel does not arouse this question in somebody's mind, we're probably not teaching it right. We're not teaching enough grace. We're teaching too much law. Also, it's a natural question. It's in our very nature to raise this question. If someone teaches, hey, you can go on and on and on and sin all you like and still have eternal life, it's like, wow, that's like bonus fries at the bottom of the package at McDonald's, right? You know, you find those bonus fries at the bottom. We all like to sin. Let's admit it. And sin always has its pleasures for a season. Forbidden fruit is always twice as sweet. And we need to be honest with our children, you know, moms and dads, as our kids get older. We need to be honest and say, yeah, sin has its pleasures in the short term. The first few drinks, the first few pills, the first few partners, almost always, it's amazing. But here's what our kids see on TV, social media, magazines. Man, sin is so good. It's so fun. And we have to be wise enough to teach our kids to think deeply about sin. Look at this Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs, by the way, is the book of the Bible that's written for teenagers. And it says, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. It feels so good, but in the end, it leads to death. Even in laughter, the heart may ache. Did you catch that? Isn't that profound, what Solomon wrote there? Even when you're partying and you're yucking it up, having a great time, everybody's laughing, but in reality, your heart is just sick and aching. I hate this. This is empty. It's futile. It's nothing. I can't believe I'm here again, but I don't know what else to do. The faithless will be fully repaid for their ways and the good rewarded for theirs. The simple believe anything, but the prudent give thought, thought to their steps. Ladies and gentlemen, moms and dads, this is how we need to teach our kids to think. But also I want you to see this. This really applies today. It's a spiritual question. Not only is it logical, not only is it natural, it's also spiritual. It's amazing how timeless your Bible is. Some suggested to Paul, my motivation for excusing sin, it's not my own satisfaction. It's the glory of God. Okay? They say, God is glorified by showing grace to sinners. So the more I sin, the more depraved I become, then the more grace God has to show, and the better it makes God look. All right? They try to twist that around and make it look kind of spiritual. The more we sin, the more grace is required to meet the situation, and this contributes more to God's glory. And there are elements in Christianity today that say this. If you really love someone, you're going to completely ignore their sin. If you're concerned about their sin, you shouldn't be, because the truly spiritual thing is to love the sinner. And denomination after denomination is grasping at straws, trying to excuse the sins of different um, parts of their membership, <clears throat> and it's wrecking lives. Churches use the grace of God as an excuse for three things that I see over and over again. Enormous greed, adultery, and homosexuality. Those are the big three. And I want you to think about this. If increasing sin means increasing grace, 
then why even worry about sin at all? Well, number one, sin destroys lives. Absolutely. It can be forgiven, but it leaves scars. And all of us could tell stories about the scars that sin has left on ourselves or on our families. Number two, it derails God's purpose, God's plan for your life. Sin always beckons you lower. God is always calling you higher. All right, and so yeah, it derails God's purpose for your life. Number two, number three, it diminishes the cross. If sin doesn't really matter, then why did Jesus go to the cross and die a cruel death to pay that debt for you and me? And the last one is this, that it drains the power out of our existence. It quenches the work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God in your life and mine. You know, a few weeks ago, I was sifting through, uh, I was going through some old stuff in my office and I found this old album by a group called Cademan's Call. I used to love Cademan's Call. And man, I put this in a CD player in my truck and I was just, man, I was, I was listening, I was loving it. I couldn't get over it. The lyrics are so good. The music is awesome. And I was thinking, man, we just don't have music like this anymore. That's a sign you're getting old. When you're like, hey, our music then was better than the music we have now. But Michael's a big fan of Cademan's Call too. And so we were talking about it, but they had a guy who was kind of the co-creator of the band named Derek Webb. And he's one of the first mainstream Christian artists, Derek Webb, to kind of deconstruct his faith, to kind of walk away from the Christian faith, you might say Orthodox Christianity, and embrace a more liberal Christianity. He left the band. He started his own musical, musical career. And can I just tell you that there's nothing there. There's no power. And he made the news again this last week because he, he came out with a song called Boys Will Be Girls. And in this music video that he made, the, in the music video, he's performing this song as a man in drag, as a woman. And the title is Boys Will Be Girls. And I want you to see this lyric from the song. I heard Jesus loved and spent his life with those who were abandoned by proud and fearful men. So if a church won't celebrate and love you, they're believing lies that can't save you or them. And remember, he's singing this while he's in drag and he's got another uh, man in drag. He calls himself Flamey Grant singing next to him. But did you catch that? If you really love a sinner, you're going to celebrate their sin. Love sinners always. Celebrate sin never. Do me a favor. Take your Bible and turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 1. Bible says here in John chapter 8, verse 1, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. That's where he went to go to sleep and kind of camp and hang out with the guys. And verse 2, at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started right on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped to the ground and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, 
until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. You know, it's very telling, by the way, that the only the woman was brought here before Jesus. There, there should be two people because there were two people caught in the act of adultery. So the man got to go away scot-free. And these pious pretenders are exploiting this woman and they're using her for their own evil purposes. And none of them is qualified to judge her because of the evil and the violence that's in their hearts. Now, Jesus knew the scriptures, all right? First of all, the sin of adultery, it's in the 10 commandments. It's also in 14 other books in the Bible. And there are people out there who they might say, well, you know, Jesus never mentioned homosexuality specifically. He didn't have to. He based all of his sexual ethics on the Old Testament, what the Old Testament taught. And so why did Jesus respond to this woman with so much compassion and grace? Romans chapter 2. Look at this up on the screen. Paul wrote, Do you have contempt for the riches of God's generosity, his tolerance and patience? Don't you realize that God's kindness or his grace is supposed to lead you to change your heart and your life? There's a great German theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he said, when we use grace as a license for sin, he called it cheap grace. And what is cheap grace? Cheap grace is I have permission to give in to sin, and I'm going to adjust the truth to the lifestyle that I want to live. But what Paul describes here is a conquering grace. Grace that is a power, not permission, but a power to triumph over sin, to battle with sin all of our lives. And we don't adjust the truth to our lifestyle, but we adjust our lifestyle to the truth. Psalm 119, the psalmist said this. He said, I am weary from grief. Strengthen me through your word. Keep me from the way of deceit and graciously give me your instruction. I have chosen the way of truth. I have set your ordinance before me. It's so important to see what he's saying here. He says, I am grieving. I'm weak. Why? Because I've been deceived by sin. I've gone down this path. I'm weary. I'm tired and I'm broken. I realize it now. And now I'm begging God for relief. God's law, God's ordinances, God's instruction, he says, those things are by them in themselves an act of grace. When God says no to something, it's not cruelty, it's kindness, it's grace. Grace is not permission to sin. I want to say this again, but it is power over sin. And Jesus knew with that woman there before him that grace, real grace, would make it possible for this woman to walk away from that sin that had kept her in bondage for so long. And so when he says, let any of you who is without sin cast the first stone, Jesus began writing. What did he write on the ground? I believe it was the name of their mistresses. I really do. I think that's what he wrote on the ground. But then in verse 11, notice what he says. I don't condemn you, just like they didn't. But then he says, go and leave your 
bad choices, your bad parenting. No, your life of sin. Go, ma'am, and leave your life of sin. Brilliantly, Jesus did two things. He extended grace and mercy, and he demanded holiness in one sentence. And it was a perfect balance of grace and truth. And ladies and gentlemen, this is our goal for our lives. This is so, this is so timely right now. Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? No, no. I don't condemn you, but leave your life of sin. Grace and truth. John 1.14, the Bible says, The Word became flesh, took up residence among us. We observed His glory, the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, back when I was a youth pastor, I used to get asked this question a lot. Uh, love those camp conversations, right? But it, I, I used to go something like this. If God forgives us no matter what we do, why shouldn't we sin all we want? Because we know God's going to forgive us anyway. And I used to explain it this way to the kids. You ever seen those pictures of the kids who live in those slums in Rio de Janeiro? And they go to the dump every day to try to find food and clothes and things like that. Imagine you're one of those kids sifting through the trash for food and clothing. You have a father. He lives back in the slums in a little, little hovel. He's cruel and he's sadistic. And he sends you to the dump every day to scrounge for things to sell. And he sells your stuff and you to anybody who will pay him money so he can drink and just gamble away all the money that you make. But then imagine one day you're in the street, you're walking to the dump, and these two people show up, a father and a son. And they say, we want to rescue you. We want to take you away from all this. We want to take you away from the dump. We want to take you away from your father, who's really a slave owner. And so you agree to go with them. But as you're leaving, the, your father, your biological father, he sees what's happening. And he pulls out this big knife and he starts running toward you with these two men and there's an older man and a younger man, a father and a son. And the son says, y'all run. And he runs toward the, this, this wicked, cruel man who has this big knife. And he gets in a fight there in the street. And he gets overpowered. And that knife goes into his chest and kills him instantly. And he bleeds out there in that dirty, filthy street. But he bought you enough time that you and the old man, y'all get away. Y'all move through the alleys. You get away. And he takes you to this beautiful five-star hotel. And he has servants come up and they give you a bath. They clean you up. They give you the best meal you've ever had in your whole life. You sleep in a soft bed. And then the next day, you're standing, the next morning, you get the best night's sleep you've ever had. You're surrounded by this you know, amazing you know, hotel you didn't even know was possible. And then this older man comes and he sits down with you. He says, I want to show you something. He says, this is my, this is my home. And he shows you this mansion. And there's this mansion, this beautiful estate. He said, I've filled out the paperwork. I've adopted you as my son, or I've adopted you as my daughter. I want to take you to my home, all right? And we're going to get on an airplane. We're going to go to my home. You're like, what's an airplane? I have no idea what that is. I don't know how that works. It's, it's, it's magic, okay? <laughs> it really is. It's amazing. I'm going to take you in an airplane. We're going to go back to my home. I want to take you to live with me. And my son gave his life for you so that you could go with me to be where I am. 
to where I live. And then you think about it and you stand up on the balcony and you look out and you see the dump in the distance and you look back at him and you say, you know what, I think I, think I want to go back. No, you would never do that. Why would you go back to slavery and poverty when you've been offered so much more? Why would you turn your back on this man after his son gave his life to, slay, to save you from slavery and poverty and cruelty. C.S. Lewis said this, Our problem is not that we desire too much, but too little. Our problem is that we are far too easily pleased. Look at verse 2. Paul says, when the person says, Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? He says, By no means. Absolutely not. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? More literally, in the original language, Paul says, may it never be. Don't even think that. Why not? We died to sin, he says. And here's the whole truth that Paul wants you and I to absorb, that you and I are a living, walking oxymoron. You, as a Christian, are two apparently contradictory things at the same time, dead and alive. He says later on in this chapter, he says, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, when the Bible says that I've died to sin, does it mean that sin is dead in me? No, it means that sin no longer has power over you. You're not a slave to sin anymore. You see, before I asked Christ to be my Savior as a teenager, sin had power over me. But once I asked Jesus to be my Savior and I gave my life to Him, Now I have power over sin. Sin has died to me. In fact, there are 85 New Testament passages that say something like, you have a new life in Jesus Christ. When you became a Christian, you received eternal life. Eternal life is not just life in the sense of quantity, like length, but it's also in terms of quality, a strength, a vigor, a vitality of life. 1 John chapter 3 says this, We know that we have left death and come over into life, and we know it because we love others. Did you catch that? How do you know that you know that you know that you've crossed from death to life? If you love people, you love God, you love people, you've crossed from death to life. But those who do not love are still under the power of death. And so you can see why the apostle would say, how can we live in sin any longer? Because what is living on the inside cannot help but be displayed on the outside. You know, in our neighborhood, we live a couple of streets over. Right down the street, there's a sweet older woman that owned a home there for years and years. And uh, I don't know exactly what happened in her family, but her two teenage sons moved in with her. And I don't know the story, but man, they were, they were pretty wild kids. They really were. And after they lived with her for a couple of years, uh, they were, you know, you, you kind of knew because the police would be at the house sometimes and bless her heart, she was struggling trying to take care of, you know, two teenage boys as she, you know, she was a much older woman. Well, eventually she died and she left the house to those two boys. And you can imagine, it was like Animal House down my street. It really was. Man, there were cars there all day, all night long, till two or three in the morning. 
You're like, well, that's what we're doing out till two or three in the morning. It's just none of your business. No, I'm not. <laughs> I just, you know, uh, remember at that time I was still going to seminary. I was staying up late a lot. And it was just amazing. Like after midnight, man, there'd be all kinds of cars in front of this house. Well, they would sleep all day, have parties all night. And the yard was just littered with trash. And the lawn died. The weeds got tall. The windows were broken. The house was in shambles. Why? Because of the people living inside. And for a year, it was never cleaned up. The police were always over there. I remember one afternoon, I saw one of the boys. He was awake during the day. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And uh, his name was Cameron. And I stopped him, and I, and I started to have a conversation with Cameron. And I, and I wanted to share the gospel with him, but he was so high. He just couldn't make any sense at all, and it just really broke my heart. The police finally were able to arrest the boys on drug charges, and they went to jail. And uh, I don't really know what happened to them, but the house was left empty, and it was trashed because of the character of the people living inside. Well, then Marshall Ford, he's the pastor over here at Grace Church. He bought the house, and uh, he wanted it for his daughter. And man, Marshall went in there, and man, he wrecked the place. I mean, he went, he went full chip gains on it. He really did. He tore it down to the studs. He tore out the windows. He tore down walls. He took out all the cabinets, all the flooring, all the fixtures, all of it. The only thing that was left was just the shell of the house. And then he completely remodeled the interior. He painted and then his daughter and his son-in-law moved in, and they started watering the grass, cutting the lawn. They started planting the, the, the flower beds. And next thing you know, it wasn't very long, it was evident that someone else very different lived inside that house. You couldn't help but tell because the outside reflected what was on the inside of the house. And it became, even today, one of the nicest homes on our block all because of who's living on the inside. It was impossible that there would not be a change on the outside when there was a change of who was living on the inside. And when that person, when a person fully trusts in Christ, Jesus comes to live within you. The Bible calls us being filled with the Holy Spirit. All right, And then there's a, when there's a new residence, there's a new exterior. But here's a great question. If I'm dead to sin, why do I still struggle with sin? Well, our bodies and our souls have been struggling, have been functioning for years under the control of sin. We live in a world that's dominated by sin. And the only purpose of this world we live in, it seems, is to seduce us into sin. You think about you know, the advertisements and everything that goes on around us to seduce us into sin. And we have impulses, desires, appetites, responses, and patterns that we've built up over a lifetime. And so as a result, we do experience failures along the way. James says we all stumble in many ways. But what about the person who says, I was born this way? We were all born to battle something, all of us. For some, the battle is chemical. For some, the battle is sexual. For some, the battle is emotional. For some, the battle is financial. And for some, the battle is relational. All of us, though, must learn what it means to be dead to sin, that sin is dead to me, and that the life of Jesus within me is more powerful it's more persistent, 
and it's more insistent than sin ever was. Last thing I want to talk about real quickly before we go. If I am losing the battle with a certain sin, like my dad did, does that mean I'm a counterfeit Christian? Look at verse 2. Paul says, We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? It deserves repeating. To live in sin is to go on and on and on with no repentance. Here's the difference. When you are dead in sin, that means you live in sin and you celebrate it. When you're alive in Christ, you lapse into sin, but you hate it when you're there. There's a huge, huge difference. And if you're wrestling with a sin in your life, the fact that you wrestle with that sin, that in and of itself is a sign of life. You and I, we all have what's called a besetting sin. We all have some areas of our lives where we just struggle and we battle and we're going to battle for the rest of our lives. But the battle itself is evidence that there's somebody else living in the house. Somebody else is living in the house. You see, the unbeliever doesn't really care about their sin unless it hurts them in some way. When the pain outweighs the pleasure, that's when they start having second thoughts. They're not giving any thoughts to things like the will of God, the glory of God, the holiness of God, or Jesus on the cross. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look what Paul wrote. Christ died for all so that those who live should not continue to live for themselves, but for him who died for them. And if anyone belongs to Christ, that person has become a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, everything is made new. Let's bow our heads together this morning, if we could. With our heads bowed, our eyes closed, I want to repeat that one more time. I want to ask you to kind of quiet your heart together this morning. With your head bowed, eyes closed, I want you to just kind of absorb this into your heart today. Christ died for all so that those who live physically would not continue to live for themselves, but for him who died for them. I just want to ask you to go before the Lord this morning and say, Lord, are there some places in my life where I'm still living for myself? I'm still living for myself and not for you. And I know that we all have things here that we battle. All of us do. But we just need to ask ourselves, Lord, am I living my life for myself? Am I living my life for you? And you know, at the end of the day, what really matters about us, the evidence that there's somebody new in the house, is that we have that love for Jesus that says, Lord Jesus, I love you and I want to live for you. And then what does Jesus say to us? I want you to love others. I want you to love others. And so, is there the evidence of love in your life that you truly and genuinely say, I meet other people's needs with, with no expectations of anything in return? That's what love means. Meeting other people's needs, expecting nothing in return. Does that characterize your life today?
You might be here today. You might say, you know what, you know, Les, I've, I've never come to a place in my life that I've ever made that decision to ask Jesus to be my Savior and my Lord. And today could be that day for you that you just, in your heart, just say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I trust you as my Savior. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I know that you died on the cross for my sins. Please save my soul. He hears and he responds. We go to him from our deep heart. Always, always. You may be here today and you made that decision. You might have made it a long time ago, but you've been battling and losing for so long. And the question for you today is, are you living for yourself and not for Jesus? Are you living for yourself and not for Jesus? We all have to ask ourselves that question every day. Because we do pick up our cross daily and follow him, don't we? So let's just be quiet together for a moment. Pray to God. Talk to him about your soul. We're going to sing a song to God before we go today. Let's just be quiet and pray together here for a moment. Lord Jesus, I just thank you so much that your word is so rich. There's so much here for us. And Lord, I just pray for that person here today, Father, who's struggling with the old. Lord, who's weary and grieving because the old has weighed upon them for so long. I just pray, Lord Jesus, that you just give them a vision of what it means to have new life in you today. And so, Lord, whether it means embracing you as Savior and Lord or whether it means just living their life for you in a new and fresh way, I pray, Lord, that today would be the day that for all of us here in some new way, there could be a new life expressed through all of us. Your life, Jesus. We just love you so much. We pray this in your name.